Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Nations rise and fall on the strengths and weaknesses of the public institutions. Parliament, courts, the presidency, the military, the police, and other institutions determine the type of governance a country has. In other words, countries are as good as their institutions. But institutions are only as good as the men and women who run and staff them. Without the right sort of leadership and commitment from the custodians, institutions cannot adequately uphold the social contract and respond to the needs of the populations. The strength and independence of institutions and the checks and balances of power that regulate them remain a challenge in many African countries. From Malawi to Benin to Ethiopia to South Africa, different countries have grappled with this multivariable equation with wide-ranging outcomes. Joining me today on Into Africa is Ken Opalo. Ken is an assistant professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development. His research interests include legislative development, the politics of service provision under decentralized government, education reforms, and electoral politics in emerging democracies. Ken's first book, Legislative Development in Africa, Politics and Postcolonial Legacies, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019, examines the evolution of legislatures in emerging democracies. Good afternoon, Ken, and welcome to Into Africa. Good afternoon, Bamba, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for us to host you today. I consider you one of my experts on institutions across Africa. I think you've done a lot of work on this. And Africa has been, it seems to me, at this crossroads of struggling with good institutions for a long time. We've seen transitions from dictators back to the other dictators or transition to democracy that never really take hold. And every so often transition that take hold for a few years and then go back to wherever we were before. I think for our audience and for myself, we're kind of curious to know what is the status and the states of institutions in Africa. Well, that's a big question. And I think first I would dispute one of your claims that the recent declines that we've seen are taking us back to a prior position. I think institutions are evolving and strengthening on the continent. I think across the board, things are much better than they used to be. And as much as things are not where they should be, right, we shouldn't lose sight of the many changes that have happened. If you consider the fact that in the DRC, the term limit was honored in a very messy way, but the DRC experienced a peaceful transfer of power. Now, how that happened was messy and should be reformed the next time around. But the fact that it happened, I think, was a big move forward. Similarly, in countries like Angola, Mozambique, Tanzania, places that you wouldn't call liberal democracies, they seem to have institutionalized transitions even when parties stay in power. So changes are happening, mostly in the positive direction. The pace of change is slow. And I would say that that's a function of the extra institutional variables that have been slow to change. In particular, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that institutions co-evolve with the rest of society. So if African economies are not doing so well, the institutions will not transition to where we want them to be at the pace that we would like to see. 
if society is not changing, if identity-based politics is still strong, that will mitigate against the process of institutional change. So I would say that the glimmers of hope, the most encouraging thing for me is the fact that we're seeing good demonstration effects in different places. So in Kenya, the courts are providing strong demonstration effects, annulling a presidential election, something that we saw repeated in Malawi, defying the president, something that we're seeing repeated across the region, with the Kenyan case being cited all over the place. We're seeing in terms of governance reforms to strengthen parliament, again in Kenya, being emulated elsewhere, which is, I think, a good thing that will encourage future transitions. There are lots of other bad things happening for different reasons across the region that I think we should pay attention to. But if I were designing a reform process, I wouldn't design a reform process that's informed by the perception that things haven't changed or that they're getting worse, but one that tries to understand the processes of change that are happening and why they're happening the way they are. Oh, that's very good. It's uh, comprehensive, but a couple of things in there. One, you use the term demonstrative effect. You know, we are just lay people here, so be curious <laughs> what that means. And then we can talk about the couple of cases you mentioned. You referred to Malawi and Kenya. I think we'd like to know what happened there and how does it relate to this concept of demonstrating effect? Yeah, I mean, I think from a policy standpoint, right, more often than not, when you see reform processes in low-income countries, usually you find an expert from Sweden trying to externalize the Swedish system, thinking that this works at home, you should try it in Malawi. We shouldn't be surprised that such enterprises fail. I think more useful would be for Malawi to try and understand how things work in a comparable country. So it really helps to see institutions working in countries like Malawi, because then it makes everyone think that it's possible, right? And believing that change is possible, I think, is a crucial step in the movement towards actual change. Instead of always feeling like change is akin to, you know, shooting for the stars because it seems so foreign. But if it's something that's readily relatable, then change is easier, is marginally easier. I like the idea of having African countries learn from other African countries and always amplifying the success stories, institutional success stories, because they will be more actionable from the context of fellow African countries. So demonstration effect is simply for a community or a country to see changes happening in a place that is comparable to theirs. And then they can see we can do the same thing as opposed to kind of I have my glasses. You cannot see. You want to try my glasses? They work for yeah. me. Type yeah. Of thing. Yes. Yeah. So what are the drivers of those changes then? You mentioned Malawi. What happened in Malawi and what happened in Kenya? And why does it matter? I'll start with Kenya. So in Kenya in 2017, the Supreme Court annulled a presidential election and forced a rerun of the election. The annulment was on a technicality. The Electoral Commission was alleged to have failed to follow the law to the letter in running the election, which then forced a, a rerun. This was a big, big, big thing, right? First time on the continent that this had happened. There were allegations of rigging. The court did not pronounce itself on the actual numbers. It pronounced itself on process, which I think was clever on their part because it focused the attention at the right place, which is the procedure of running an election. Similarly, in Malawi, again, the court annulled a presidential election that was alleged to have been rigged by the incumbent president. And this came right on the heels of the Kenyan annulment. The discussion in the lead up to the Malawi case had very strong references to the Kenyan case which is why I'm led to believe that the Kenyan case had some impact on Malawian judges' willingness to go as far as they did. 
And this is key because when we think of reform processes, we often don't pay close attention to ideas, but ideas matter. And our conception of how the world works shapes the bounds of what we think is possible. Going back to the idea of the demonstration effect, right? The more we see certain things happening, the more likely we are to believe that they're possible in our different contexts. So if you're in Malawi and you see something happening in Kenya, if you're in West Africa and you see Ghana's reforms of its healthcare system, you're very likely to replicate it because it looks doable within your context, as opposed to something far off in a far off country. So in both cases, Malawi and Kenya, it seems like those changes came through the court. Opposition groups have been fighting for change for a long time in Africa. That's not new. And often the grievances die when they go to the court. And that is often, you can correct me here, it's because often this court's work is an extension of the executive. The relationship is always very tight. It's often very tight. What has changed? What changed in both countries? I think both countries reflect the strong history of judicial professionalism in, I would say, Eastern Southern Africa. Because even in a country like Uganda, where the president totally dominates the courts, Museveni routinely loses cases in the courts in Uganda. And that's driven by the fact that there's a strong professional community of lawyers who, for professional reasons, are often compelled to follow the law. And so if boosted by outside signals, like, you know, Malawians looking at Kenya and thinking that, oh, this is possible as a matter of professional conduct and being part of the loyally epistemic community, then that can be a driver of change. Now, the Kenyan context, which I'm more familiar with, you know, the process of reforming the courts, what happened in Kenya was that the new constitution that was enacted in 2010 provided both political and financial and organizational independence for the court. The president does not originate judicial appointments in Kenya. There's a commission, an independent commission, that submits appointees to the president. So his role is purely ceremonial. So that's one thing. The other thing is the court does not get its budget from the executive branch. The Kenyan judiciary submits its budget proposals directly to parliament. So again, you know, yes, the president can delay disbursements through the treasury, but the actual appropriation will already have been done by parliament. So that provides, you know, both political on the appointment side and fiscal and bureaucratic independence on the budget side, which makes it possible for judges to not feel beholden to the president. And that is new since the new constitution. That's part of kind of the offshoot of the changes that constitutionally were made. And now it empowered the judges to do their work yeah. in a way that is much more enabling for them. Yeah. And, you know, I should add that even before these reforms, right, the professionalization of the court system was already underway. If, say, if I were reforming Rwanda, maybe Kagame will not buy a complete overhaul of the funding and appointment processes. But, you know, maybe he would be happy with a more professionalized legal and judicial system. So I would invest in such professionalization because then that makes it ever more likely that should a change happen, then the fiscal and bureaucratic independence will just amplify the professional development that had already been taking place, which is what happened in Kenya. And that momentum is still ongoing or what? On the election, it was very clear. How has that morphed with time? into other areas of the relationship in the various institutions? 
I think it's ongoing in the sense that the president keeps fighting the courts. There's a dispute over two judges that he was supposed to appoint and he's refused to appoint them. I think they'll probably be appointed by his successor after this August election. But, you know, the refusal to appoint was informed by, I think, the need to signal that he still has appointing powers and, and discretion, which he doesn't, according to the law. Okay, I was about to ask about that. Does he have veto power to veto what the parliament has advanced? He doesn't have any veto power. The institution with a veto power is parliament. So parliament can reject the Judicial Service Commission's nominees. The president simply has to appoint them. So Kenya is one side, but then we have Benin. In Benin, what's happening there? It seems like it's the reverse of everything that you've just described. Yeah, so in terms of Beninoa politics, I think Benin is a cautionary tale. Benin and Mali, if you read the literature on Mali after 92, it was very rosy right until the coup in 2012. And I think those countries are reminders that the sort of Potemkin democracies that we tend to celebrate will always disappoint us because the changes were not deep. I would put Benin in the same bucket as Zambia, where there has been multiple turnovers in presidential elections, but the structural distribution of power hasn't taken place. So the presidency is still very powerful and can do what you've seen happen in Benin, where the president basically has been amassing power to himself. Very quickly as well, in a short order. So Benin is the other extreme when it comes to the court, but courts are just one institution. You know, courts, they come in to put orders if there is a mess or to make sure that the road is clear so that things can move. So that takes me to the other side. And the other side is just the checks and balances. How does this work in other institutions? You've worked a lot on decentralization. You have worked on education reforms. How do these changes affect those areas? And are you seeing more weight from the courts and other institutions reclaiming what they need to reclaim across the continent? And part of it is we're still seeing youth being upset. We're still seeing youth mobilization, and it's often because they claim services are not delivered, the executive is not keeping up its promises, the parliament are not doing their jobs, and the list goes on. How do you assess that space and those dynamics? It's country by country, but if you can just take a couple examples, I think that would be helpful. Going back to your first question, like, you know, this big overview, right? In the recent past, we've seen complaints about the alleged democratic recession in Africa, right? The backsliding. Yeah, the backsliding story. I mean, I think that that narrative has focused on the wrong things because the history of democratization since the 90s was one of great promise and citizens were patient for 30 years. And the net effect has been nothing but disappointment from Zambia to Kenya, even Ghana, right, Nigeria, Benin, South Africa, right? You see example after example of democracy failing to deliver. Those of us who study institutions and are normatively inspired to be pro-democracy, we should pay attention to the fruits of democracy. Because I think it's naive to assume that people will always support a system of government that is not delivering for them in their everyday livelihoods. So I think the crisis of democracy as I see it is not one of, you know, the Museveni's and Talon's failing to leave power. It's one of African governments as states lacking the ability to deliver essential public goods and services. And so to strengthen democracy, we have to think through the strengthening of the African state so that democracy can make sense and elections are no longer just rituals. 
going back to your question, right, I think the true decentralization can make a difference. In Kenya, decentralization, I think, has gone the farthest in the sense that it's lower than the states in Nigeria, and it's given local communities a lot more say in the management of their affairs. I think that's the way to go to make the electoral process make sense at the lowest level in, in real terms, budgets coupled with elections, coupled with real control over specific policy areas. That then makes elections make sense. You can add one to one to get the two that you need. You vote for a governor in Kenya, it has direct implications for the healthcare system in the county very, very direct implications, as opposed to this notion of, you know, some abstract commitment to liberal democracy without the material component in it. So in the case of Kenya, this is what you call devolution, is that yeah. that's correct? So what drove that? I think that may be an interesting case studies for us to, to hear a little more. Kenya was centralized like any other African countries, I suppose, at the beginning, with strong men at the helm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and some women. And some but, women, well, but, but mostly but, men. But they were men, right? Yeah, they, they, mostly they, men. They were men. Right? happened. We're still waiting for our strong women to emerge. <laughs> <laughs> so what drove that and how is it working? What were the impetus behind it? You mentioned about the localization, you know, this uh, word that I like, because we're just going to take things that's happening in Sweden. We're going to do things that make sense here. So what drove that in Kenya and how did the institutions align to support that? Yeah, I think the story of devolution is partly one of the reasons why I'm very hopeful about Kenyan politics, because it's always been about people's very naked material interests. So the process of decentralization in Kenya and devolution with the 2010 constitution was about what in Kenyan political parlance is referred to as historical injustices. Historical injustices. Yes, which is often code for, you know, ethnic favoritism by the president at the center. Some of it was just ethnic favoritism. Part of it was also official policy from the mid-60s, which had this idea that the government should invest scarce resources in regions that would produce the most returns to those investments. And that meant that line of rail in Kenya from Mombasa through central Kenya, Nairobi, into Kisumu in western Kenya, through the neglect of most of uh, northern Kenya. And then coupled with ethnic favoritism, it meant that you know, a lot of resources were really concentrated in a few areas in the country. Elites with mass support were very clear that the government should, as a matter of course, spend money everywhere. And so they demanded for devolution. The constitution then allocated 15% of funds that had to be allocated to the county system. And governors were given the money to spend in their counties, uh, guaranteed by formula. Because of political pressure, it is very likely that after the August election, that allocation will be increased to 35%. Which is a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's rooted in politics. There's great political demand. In my surveys, I see that while the constitution has delineated powers for the counties, most Kenyans actually want counties to basically do everything because, you know, they're closer, they're often more visible than the far-off central government. I think, you know, this is a process where you see the politics and institutional change having this nice dance it's messy, there's corruption, but I think overall devolution has been a net positive. Does the center feel insecure? Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, if the counties are running healthcare, that means that you can't claim that you're doing something on healthcare, right? If they're doing education, you can't claim that you're doing something on education. So the center feels like it's losing control over local elites who are now free to ally with whoever they want. 
And, you know, in the current context, you find governors and MPs also because they have their own kitty known as this constituency development fund, which is also guaranteed by formula in the constitution by law. They are able to support whoever they want for the presidential election without feeling like they need to be loyal to the incumbent president. How is the center fighting back if they're feeling so insecure? Do they have means to reclaim certain territory? It's all so clear in the constitution. There's no room for that. Yeah, the president has been fighting back. The center is fighting back by, say, healthcare as an example. The spending on healthcare by the central government almost matches what the counties spend combined, even though health is the main devolved service. Now, the national government has justified this as, you know, they run level five hospitals and referral hospitals across the country. They need to spend money on, on those. What is the level five hospital? Those are like the highest level hospitals. So they say they're running, quote unquote, national hospitals that need funding. They also came up with a leasing scheme where they leased medical equipment to county run hospitals. This has been a corruption boondoggle for the most part. And so those are ways in which the central government is trying to signal that it's also investing in healthcare. I think more perniciously, the central government is fighting back by delaying the disbursement of funds to the counties through the treasury. And I think that was one of the biggest oversights in terms of the framing of the constitution. The allocation by formula was great. They should have also thought about having automatic disbursement of funds that are not dependent on the discretion of the finance minister. So you described a very important case, which going back to your early statement on demonstration effect, I think people are watching what's happening in Kenya. In many African countries, because of the sheer sizes of African countries, there's always this friction between centralization. We continue having a center that is strong or regions that have more autonomy. And I think Kenya is a case study for a lot of countries, as, as you said earlier, speaking about demonstration effect. My question to you is, how do we encourage reforms that go along this way? It doesn't have to be decentralization, the way that Kenya is doing the devolution, but it's obviously at the core of a lot of the grievances. A few moments ago, I talked about the youth, but it's not just the youth. It's a different level, rural versus urban, old versus young. You know, the list goes on. Sometimes it's class, sometimes it's regional, sometimes it's ethnicity. How do we encourage those kind of reforms that serve everybody, but driven by institutions, not just strong people who yeah. then may disappear? And then we go back to the historical grievances. Yeah, I mean, I think one, we should accept that time is a valuable factor. Maybe I'm just getting old and jaded. <laughs> but, you know, we shouldn't always be too impatient to dismiss reform processes, which then means that whatever reform processes we're thinking about should be long term. So Kenya's remarkable 2010 constitution, right, the amendment process began in the early 90s. So time is core here. And I think the second is our reforms should match the political realities in the countries. So I wouldn't advocate, say, Tanzania to have the same devolved architecture as Kenya because Kenya's devolved system very much matches Kenyan political history. So this is also a call for more respect for individual country trajectories, by which I mean, you know, honestly respecting individual country trajectories and taking their histories and politics seriously. But at the same time, that respect for the country's specific trajectory can also serve as a big obstacle because it can serve the autocrat in power. It's something we hear a lot. We are unique. Our country is so different from the other countries. But at the same time, there's an argument to be made to you, to everybody else who studies things. The business of governance is the business of governance. 
Good governance is good governance. We know what it looks like. I mean, even democracies don't look alike. Norwegian democracy is very different from what's happening in Spain, what's happening in the US, what's happening in France. It's account for the various differences and histories, but we still know this is a democracy and here are some of the characteristics that make a democracy. In Africa, there is this sense. I love the leaders in power like to talk specifically about what you're saying, but we're very different. Yeah, so my point was closer to your description of the OECD democracies, Sweden, the UK, the US being different. Because what often happens is at the same outfit, say USAID will have an Africa-wide decentralization program. And if you look across the different programs, they look very similar. It suggests that someone did not pay close attention to individual country histories. So yeah, my pushback would be against such designs with apologies to USAID. That was just an example. <laughs> my, right. my pushback would be against this sort of procrastinate idea that things should look the same. As a principle, we want government that's closer and more accountable to the people, period. How you achieve that is uncontextual. In some places, it's at the county level. And even in Kenya, right, it was contested. Some wanted just nine regions. Some wanted 47 counties. The 47 counties team won out. So allowing for that local contestation and debate is crucial. And this is both at the institutional design level, but also at the policy level. I'm currently paying close attention to education reform, and it's often maddening just seeing how inattentive would-be reformers are to local contexts and histories of specific policy areas. How do we then account for, you mentioned USAID, the many other organizations out there. So how do we foster homegrown change? But at the same time, we know a lot of countries need support, outside support. So can you talk a little bit about that friction there? In 2020, right, I'd be hard-pressed to find a country that, say, lacks a good domestic policy expert on any sector. So I think just from the get-go, right, we should move away from hiring policy experts from the Beltway as the gods of Sector X. That's so, you know, 1900s. Let's, uh, let's drop that okay. right, as a starting point. And let's be radical about it. I like uh, administrator powers move to increase local content. Samantha Power. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she's, yeah. She's been pushing for more local content. I think 30% threshold of local content. I'd go for more. And the local content shouldn't be just, you know, the implementers at the grassroots. Local content should be at the ideation stage of whatever project USAID is engaging in because projects have to make sense both from a sociological perspective, but also political and institutional perspectives. So that from the get-go, you're doing things that make sense in context. I think that would be uh, my biggest sort of uh, policy suggestion. Now, because we live in the world that is so fully intertwined, there is no place that doesn't affect what happens in other parts of the world. Everybody has an effect, whether it's climate change, whether it's minerals, whatever it is, you know, whether it's tourism, everybody wants to go to Kenya or Tanzania. We are all intertwined in so many ways. And that brings me to the issue of, you know, you're also an economist, FDI, Foreign Direct Investment in Africa. One of the hurdles that we hear a lot about is the enabling environment, that foreign investors, they face obstacles. And one such obstacle is the rule of law. And I'm not even talking about corruption, just the rule of law. How do you enforce contract, the sanctity of contract? Though that's one side. And then there's also, with the same rule of law, if you're a youth, you are fighting or you're civil society, it's about how do you guarantee civic rights and human rights and that stuff. How do you read that space? Because on one level, I think there's a lot of opportunities that are lost there, either by perception or by reality, but that's a fact. And that also goes with the reforms, right? Because parliament, court, the presidency, all these institutions have to work. 
border control, you know, all that stuff. So how does that play in these reforms and institutions? I'll take your first question first. I think the way I see the FDI problem on the continent, I wouldn't say that it's mostly driven by actual weaknesses on the rule of law on the ground level, but rather foreign perceptions of the rule of law in Africa. The few times I've talked to business people, right, political risk and corruption always comes to mind. And the theory of change there seems to be that you need a perfect legal system and zero corruption for you to experience growth. Well, that, which that is, doesn't exist. Yes, right? <laughs> which is not true, right? Those institutional processes co-evolve with investments and growth. So, you know, I would ask anyone out there who has money to invest in the continent to, you know, give it a try. Chinese, French, Turkish farms are making lots of money on the continent. So there's no reason why American farms should feel like they're the only ones who'll be losing money. I think it's a cop-out to say that it's because of corruption and lack of rule of law. That said, I think African governments have a lot to do to provide an enabling environment. And if I were thinking about designing a reform sort of agenda for these countries, I would focus on reforms that are anchored on the needs of local farms. Because more often than not, what you see is, you know, if you're instituting business reforms, often it's for the benefit of politically relevant foreign farms. But the president can always ignore the foreign farms, right? They don't have a local political constituency. But if you anchor your reforms on politically implicated local big farms and SMEs, then you have a domestic constituency that will anchor those reforms and strengthen them for the long haul. So in the same way you were advocating on the political side? Yeah. Is the local stakeholders? Yes, there has to be stakeholders at the local level for the reforms to make sense. And then, you know, on the second question on youth and rule of law, we need to address the politics at the elite level, because more often than not, it's elites fighting each other around elections, creating violence or hiring thugs around elections, who then after elections stay in the business of thuggery and cause a lot of mayhem. So, you know, addressing the political roots of the lack of rule of law, as opposed to, you know, writing laws and hoping for the best. Staying with the youth again, how do you recommend that we create avenues for youth within this space that, in your case, you see the glass three, four full, half full, I don't know, but you, you, you're optimistic. Very much so. Exactly. So that <laughs> came true. But how do we create these avenues that when the youth mobilizes, it actually translates into policymaking? Youth go in the street, they do whatever they have to do, but it's very punctual and it stops within a couple months. And then we go back again. So how do we create avenues that the youth get to the policy center? They get to the parliament, they get to the municipal offices, and eventually they get to the parliament and other places. Even at state house, yeah. why not? I guess I would push back against that premise. I don't think the youth should be in the business of constantly advocating in the streets. Right. I agree. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So we need to get them better <laughs> <Yeah>. ways. <laughs> because I think that what we should think more about is truly serious and transformational policymaking, which I think is still very much lacking on the continent. So what does that entail? That entails being serious about what it will take to reduce poverty in, say, Nigeria or Ghana. Because across the continent, there's maybe outside of Rwanda, there's not a single country that I can say is doing, you know, the big things that are needed to reorient. Like a radical transformation yeah. of sorts. Yeah, that to reorient society. So that, you know, most of the time when you hear, you know, this angst about Africa's population and the youth, the problem gets framed as this giant thing. And then when you look at the solutions, right, it's laughable. 
It's like, you know, loans here and there, some projects that are worth nothing. The change that's needed to address the challenges that you've highlighted will require massive job creation, the growth of farms, right? Urbanization at scale. And when I look around the continent, I don't see a single country that's doing what will be needed to be done to achieve uh, that huge transformation. I don't see partners, perhaps with the exception of China and Turkey, that are doing, again, the kind of helping that would be needed to achieve the transformation. On this program, you've been on this program before, it changed a little bit, but one thing we talk about in conclusion is always the gap. And we mind the gap, and that means, where do we miss the thing? There's the perception of Africa and the reforms of institutions. You kind of referred to that earlier. You know, I'll say they're weak, they're not strong enough. You said, obviously, something different, which is probably more nuanced. So where is the gap? Where do we go wrong in our perceptions of what's happening on the ground, with institutions, independence, and strength? And then how do we address that? If you're the magic wand, what will you do for us to have the kind of institution that will do exactly what you're advocating for, the transformation, the radical change? I think, you know, if, if I had a magic wand, I would make everyone focus on economic transformation and service delivery, because I think it's going to be harder for African states to go back to the 90s and 80s. Because even Talon, in his attempts to rewind the clock in Benin, is having a lot of trouble. He has to pretend that he's still a Democrat. So I wouldn't be too worried, as most people seem to be, about like, you know, going back. We're not going back. The cut is out of the bag. The youth will not accept it. However, the youth are also concerned about material livelihoods. So to protect democracy and ensure continued democratic consolidation, we need to pay attention to, you know, service delivery, hospitals, schools, roads, and whatnot. And we need to pay attention to job creation because that's what will help strengthen institutions further. Across the world, it's hard to see poor but vibrant democracies. Yeah, they don't exist. Yeah, we're playing a losing game by assuming that we can have a sustainable liberal democracy in Malawi with a per capita income of less than $1,000. We can only go so far with less than $1,000 per capita income. So to get to the next level and even higher, we need to improve the economic situation in the country so that we can empower citizens to be better protectors of their own freedoms. Thank you very much, Ken Opalo, for joining us today and for this great conversation. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.